Hello, I'm Roger Bolton and welcome to this week's podcast, which I'm delighted to say has been sponsored by the PR firm Quingenti. Do get in touch if you would like to sponsor any future episodes. This week, in the run-up to the BBC's centenary celebrations, I'll be talking to one of its best-ever broadcasters. I would have fought tooth and nail for, first of all, the rigour of news gathering and political interviewing, which I think has slid over the years. Yes, the one and only David Dimbleby, with whom I first worked almost um, 50 years ago. We'll be talking about his and the BBC's past, present and future. The corporation's future is as a smaller organisation with less output as a result of the financial squeeze imposed by government and worsened by inflation. Here's news of another programme which is about to bite the dust. Jane Hill is still just the presenter of the film review with Mark Commode on the BBC News Channel. She tweeted on Sunday... As Mark Commode has already mentioned... This is our penultimate film review on BBC News. Not our decision, obviously. I'm really going to miss our weekly chats. I'm off for a few days, but we'll be back for our final fling on Friday. Many viewers were quick to respond. Gary on Twitter. I get the horrible feeling that the BBC are ripping out the best content from the news channel to make it easier to merge the remains into BBC World. The pair of you made a great team. Roger on Twitter. This and Dateline London in the same week. You do wonder what they're playing at. These shows cost buttons and deliver loads. Donna from Twitter. What on earth is going on? What a terrible shame. The arts is so hugely important to the nation and it seems to be increasingly sidelined and squeezed by the BBC. Not good news at all. Yes, not good news at all, and it's against this backdrop of cuts that the BBC is trying to celebrate its centenary. Next Tuesday marks its 100th anniversary. The BBC was, of course, founded by Lord Reith, who famously said its mission was to inform, educate and entertain. One man who has done all those three things is David Dimbleby, who started as a BBC news reporter in Bristol over 60 years ago. He was following in the mighty footsteps of his father Richard, who first joined the BBC as a radio reporter in 1936 and nursed my generation through the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis. David followed his father as presenter of Panorama, where I was briefly his editor, and then took over Question Time and presented it for 25 years. He's made documentary series and, of course, has been the anchorman on numerous general election and referendum programmes and the commentator for many state occasions, including, of course, the Queen's state funeral just a few weeks ago. Uh, Well, David Dimbleby joins me now. David, you've just written Keep Talking, A Broadcasting Life. You're in your 80s. What took you so long? (laughs) What took me so long was that um, COVID created a kind of pause in everybody's life. And I sat down and looked at my diaries, just engagement diaries from 1960 onwards, and thought, ooh, what a lot of odd things I've done. I'd better make a list of them. So over the year, I made a list of everything I'd done. And then I thought, oh, well, this is interesting. I've done all kinds of broadcasting. Maybe it would be good to write something about it. Um, And I wasn't doing any live broadcasting. I'd stopped doing Question Time. So I thought, well, I don't want to die leaving all this stuff unwritten, I might as well write it down because it might amuse people a bit. 
and interest people. And I'm, I've always been interested in broadcasting and how it works and why it matters. And in particular, the BBC's centenary coming up and the BBC being under attack uh, from various quarters, I thought it was a good moment to kind of say, this is what it's like to be a broadcaster and to broadcast substantially with the BBC for 70 years. Well, I mean, it's the thing that struck me about it is uh, how many strong opinions you've got that you've managed to successfully hide for at least about 50 or something years. If anybody had asked me what you thought about the political parties, whatever, despite having worked with you, I couldn't have told them. I couldn't have told people how you voted. And I'm quite surprised by how outspoken you are on some issues. I mean, What issues in particular? I mean, I, I, you still don't know how I vote. I don't know how you vote, although I think you say somewhere in the broadcasting life you have voted for all the major parties. Yeah, well, that doesn't help much, does it? No, but it's a, it's interesting. And you're quite critical, obviously, about the BBC's relationship with the royals. You're uh, pessimistic about the nature of the political interview. You are depressed by the quality of the present-day politicians. Uh, that's a few things of uh, a few things where you've not hidden your views. Yes, that's all. That's all true. Yes, that's all true. That's all true. I mean, but the other thing which comes across from your broadcasting life is your sense of being an outsider, and and working with you, I always had that sense in which you were elusive in some way. Even when I worked closely with you, and we, there was always a bit of you which was holding back. Is is that true? Have you always been a slightly elusive personality? I don't know. I've no idea, Roger. Elusive. Um, I don't think I'm at all elusive. Uh, broadcasting is a is a profession. It's a job, and you don't reveal yourself entirely in broadcasting, even though it's a very intimate kind of relationship you have with the listener or the viewer. But you know, when you go to your doctor, you don't know what his private life is or what his real feelings are, and. I don't see why, when you listen to a broadcaster, you need to know what his his private life is or his obsessions are or what he enjoys doing or any of that, because he's always doing a professional job. And I think, I mean, I know very little about you, you know, and I've worked closely with you on elections and on Nationwide and all kinds of places, but we share a common view about how broadcasting should be done and what the skills are and what the demands are and what the obligations are and what the rights and wrongs of it are. And we both share, uh, you perhaps to an even greater degree than me, an obsession with getting at the truth of things because you've risked your career to get at the truth of things. Well, over, well, well, you have, you have. When you were editing Panorama, you know, you took great risks. Uh, and when you were doing... Um, your feedback you took, mm. obviously, well, you complained that BBC would never come and talk to you. I can understand people not coming to talk to you because you pushed them so hard. Well, can we go back quickly, thank you very much, to uh, to your beginnings? You're very open about, you say you're open to the charge of nepotism, i.e. in terms of opportunities, because inevitably with your father being Richard Dimbleby, who, as I've mentioned in the introduction, steered me through the Cuban Missile Crisis when I'd virtually given up hope, um, the fact was, being his son, you got opportunities, but of course, that's all you got. You had to take them. But you also earlier said, well, your first chapter's entitled Not Fit to Run a Wealth Store. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, you ran a successful publishing yes. company and so on. So what was that all about? Why did you say you're not fit because to run a Because the BBC rejected me as Director General, though I had some good ideas. The Board of Governors, as it was at the time, 
uh, rejected my bid to do that, in which I was encouraged by the newly appointed chairman, Duke Hussey, which maybe itself is a blot on my escutcheon. And then when I applied to be chairman, the DCMS liked my ideas, they said, but said I didn't have the experience to run a big organisation. That's what I was getting at. I mean, the old joke about not fit to run a whelk stall is just, you know, it means not able to do the admin for a big organisation. I don't know whether they were right or wrong. Actually, I'm quite glad with hindsight that I didn't become chairman because it would have ended my broadcasting career. And instead, my broadcasting career went on for another 20 years, including, you know, 25 years of question time and all, all the things I've really enjoyed. So, But if you had become director general yes. or if you'd become chairman, yes. how would the BBC be different today, do you think? Well, it'd be arrogant to say how it would be different, Roger, because, as you know, all director generals fail and all chairmen fail. You sound like Enoch Powell. Well, you know, that famous statement, all politics end in failure. But well, OK, true, how would you... It? It's true, it's true. I well, mean, it's true in the sense that everything succeeds, people replace things. But at the time, what changes would you have made at the time, both in 1986 and then later, of significance? What did you want to do with the organisation? Um, I, I, I wasn't interested in the entertainment side. I'm only interested in political interviewing and news. And I would have fought tooth and nail for... First of all, the rigour of news gathering and political interviewing and all that, which I think has slid over the years. And I would have fought tooth and nail to um, extol the virtue of the BBC and the public support for it against the rather lazy attacks on it from both newspapers like the Daily Mail and politicians. I'll just pick up that in a moment. When you said standard had slipped, in what way do you spot that slippage? Well, I think it's partly that the BBC doesn't give uh, enough air, uh, enough room, that is, to politics. I remember, Roger, you once, when you were editing Nationwide, and I think this was perhaps the most lunatic decision you ever took in your life, you devoted a whole edition, a whole edition of Nationwide which was meant to be a family viewing programme early evening, to the Russian famine, wheat shortages or something like that, because you thought it was important. Now, I thought its consequence for the rest of the world would be you profound. Were, you, yeah. Yes. Ha, I, you, I mean, <laughs> your instinct, what I'm getting at is, is a serious point. Your instinct was absolutely right to do that. It wasn't perhaps the right place to do it. But the BBC, in the time I've been covering, you know, doing politics and political interviewing things, seems to have abandoned the idea of long political discussion and debate in favour of, you know, you get short interviews on, on the Today programme. You don't have a regular drumbeat of politics is to be taken seriously, which means we're going to offer half an hour of argument with one person about their political views, partly because they won't appear and do it, of course. David, it's all right offering it, but if they won't take it up, what do you do? That's a real issue. You talk in the book about the distress, really, about the fact that the big political interview, the long, is almost redundant. But do you think that actually long before, even when people turned up, they were trying to simply impart a message? I'm just thinking back to when you did interviews in the 70s and 80s and Sir Robin Day did, 
with some really substantial figures. Let's take Dennis Healy for an example. They enjoyed the engagement. They wanted to come in. By the time you get to the time of Brown and Blair, they have a set of messages, certainly in terms of Brown, that they wish to impart. And they're going to say, whatever question you ask, they're going to give you almost the same answer. And today you have a situation, or yesterday, where the Prime Minister, then Boris Johnson, uh, avoided Andrew Neil in the general election because he didn't want to have a long interview. So is it the broadcaster's fault or is it the politician's fault that we now no longer have this extended examination of their positions in interview form? I'd like to think that the broadcasters would accept them if they were offered. And they are, I mean, Stephen Sacker does a thing on the World Service. Yeah, hard talk. And he has, and of course, it's not just politicians. I mean, he has scientists and economists and educationists and thinkers of all kinds and foreign politicians. And I think that's what I mean, really, that the BBC doesn't do that on its domestic services. I mean, I agree with you. Obviously, you can never force anybody to give an interview. And Boris Johnson's perfectly entitled not to appear. Liz Truss was perfectly entitled equally not to appear with Andrew Neil when she was campaigning for her 80th 2,000 votes for the leadership of the Conservative Party. Uh, People, of course, can't be forced, but it seems to me you have to create a culture in which talking and listening is seen by the BBC particularly to be part of the political and social conversations we have. So you create a vehicle. I mean, there is no way you can turn to now on BBC One or Two where you know once a week you'll be able to get a serious discussion. You know, like the Brains Trust, I know you used to do it, but they don't, you know, they don't do it. The SACA does it on the World Service. We have a pretty brilliant operation of yes. telling you day-to-day events in Westminster. But whether we have enough programmes which stand back and say, I mean, for example, look at the health service. The argument is always, you know, is uh, the health service safe in Tory hands and so on and give more money to the health service. We don't, on the whole, have discussions saying, why are we doing particularly badly compared to the rest of you in infant mortality? Why are we only middling in Europe when it comes to with cancer? Why are we better than most in terms of heart issues? You know, dig down into these things which really matter rather than just I'm for, I'm against the NHS. Yes. No, well, I would agree with that. Uh, I have no difficulty answering that question. I think you're absolutely right. It's like the GDP issue, isn't it? You get GDP where the, we're the fourth biggest in the world. If you look at per capita GDP, we're about 22nd or something in the developed world, I think something like that. It's never mentioned that actually G- GDP per capita, which is what really counts for you and me and people in all sections of society, is way below uh, what you get in France or in Germany or in um, the Scandinavian, that you take one figure and argue it and people go around in circles. I mean, but again, I go back to this thing that the, the, the way that you discuss politics and the language of politics needs this constant exploration. And I mean, I'm with you. I think they do very good programmes um, about Westminster. I think Joe, Joe's programme on television, you know, the, yeah. and the podcasts yeah. about Westminster are very good. But, uh, and, and she does get people to argue with each other. I talked to her the other day about how you do it, and she said she didn't cross-question them. She let them have a go at each other, which is one way of doing it. And the Today programme has an agenda which is on the ball, on political things. I heard them this morning interviewing Therese coffee i see they put her on before the eight o'clock news which is the sort of low low level um importance (laughs) 
Um, but they do, they, do, they do sort of go through it. But I agree with you, this sort of broad discussion about politics, but also political philosophers we don't hear from. We don't hear from economists very often. You know, not properly engaging, talking about what they don't know, which is what's interesting about economics, not what they claim to know, but what they don't know, how they can't predict human behaviour and all those things. There doesn't seem to be any, any place where that sort of thing happens. Are you pessimistic about the quality of today's politicians? I mean, you and I, as I say, were working first of all together, I remember, in the conferences in the 1970s, and uh, we met people like Roy Jenkins, Dennis Healy, or Mrs Thatcher, Michael Heseltine, people like that. Um, yes. Is it just old people like us who think the quality has gone down? It may be, Roger, but I don't think it is. I mean, it's easy to be nostalgic, isn't it? But they were a different kind of person, but also they lived in a different world, didn't they? So they didn't have to put up with this constant, absurd coverage on social media where they get immediately attacked for anything they see. Their families get attacked, their have brutal threats made to them which no one can control. All of that didn't happen. You know, if you were a controversial politician, you didn't need escorting into a party conference, you didn't need protection, you didn't need your house number hidden. You know, you could be openly an aggressive, I mean, Enoch Powell or Tony Benn, you know, on two sides of an argument. They didn't go around scared for their families. Whereas now, the moment you open your mouth, it seems if you follow, which I don't, Twitter or read what's said, it's a nerve-wracking business. And we've, you know, we know what's consequences of Joe Cox's killing and David Amos is being killed. You know, it's a different world. And maybe it stopped attracting the same kind of people. I don't know. You probably know them better than I do now, the new take, but... No, I mean, I think one thing they can't be blamed for modern politicians is the fact they haven't fought in a, a war, as, for example, you know, Dennis Healy was the beach landing officer at Anzio. Well, we were always told that that was what made them into men, yes. I mean, was it true? Maybe. And Macmillan, you know, was in the trenches reading Aeschylus or whatever. Yes, but also watching a large number of people under his command die. Yes. I mean, it's pretty sobering. And yes. I don't think you can doubt Macmillan's genuinely attachment to his constituency and concern for the unemployed. I think that was, well, however cynical the man was in many other ways, that was genuine, as was Healy's um, identification with, uh, with working people. I remember doing a thing with Enoch Powell, you know, but I was thinking about this current government's view on universal benefits being tied to inflation. And Therese Coffey, I think it was, saying today, well, you don't, we don't know how much money people who are on universal benefits actually have, as though it was something... Um, uh, you know, views about uh, looking after the poorest in society. And I remember Enoch Powell, I did a thing with him about, I think it was about women's rights. And there was a question, um, uh, it was a phone-in, and somebody rang in and said, why are women not allowed to sign higher purchase agreements? And this is a kind of streak of the libertarian view, uh, which I use simply as an illustration. He said, well, if the people who sell higher purchase agreements thought there was money to be made, from allowing women to sign higher purchase agreements at the time you had to have your, your husband sign it, if they thought it was profitable and the right thing to do, are you suggesting they wouldn't offer it to women? As though that was an answer. Do you see what I mean? That kind of libertarian view of let everything just, you don't need to control anything and let everything rip, is a streak in the supply-side view of economics, which I'm sure Enoch Powell shared, and which we're seeing absolutely writ large at the moment. But, but uh, and not gaining any traction, as far as I can see, in the public domain, because this particular government, chosen by the 82,000 Tories, 
seems to be floundering. Well, we're pessimistic, both of us, I suspect, about the quality of political interviews, not necessarily interviewers. But you are reading your book. What comes across was deep love, pride and enjoyment in question time and a thrill you got for doing it. I mean, it didn't diminish in your 25 years running question time, did it? Not at all. Running is not... The, my editors run me, Roger, yeah. as you know. Uh, but, and, um, of course, you know that once the programme starts, it's entirely up to you. Yes, that's the, <laughs> that's the pleasure. That's the only reason that makes it a grown-up job. I did love Question Time because I liked drawing out the views of the audience. And I always used to say to the audience at the beginning, this isn't the politicians' programme. And in a funny way, it's not even the BBC's programme. It's your programme because the agenda comes from you and the questions come from you and it's up to you to make the running. And that's what I loved about it because I like hearing... I mean, I'm a, I'm a sort of listener, really. I like hearing people's views, uh, uh, however difficult they are. I, you know, I, I really enjoyed two, three years in South Africa listening to Afrikaners about why they endorsed apartheid, how it came about that they believed that they were entitled. Yeah, this was for your documentary series, award-winning documentary series, White Tribe of Africa. Yes. And uh, you and you talk about this in your book. You managed to be, on the one hand, clear about the nature of apartheid, with also being very understanding about the attempt by the white South Africans to somehow fashion a future. That's what's so interesting about it. But I'm sure the same is true. If you could delve down into the psyche of Liz Truss, uh, you would find that in her character and in her background, an explanation for her views. That's what I find interesting. I just think that human behaviour, it's not politics, you see, that really interests me. I've never been interested in politics. I'm interested in why people think the things they do and how they come to think the things they do and what, what their opponents think. I mean, I've never been interested in the kind of who's up, who's down, who's in, who's out, who's going to win the election or the by-election. I mean, I've covered them, obviously, but that, that isn't what interests me. What interests me is why do you hold the views you do and where do they come from? But you're robust in the book in saying that the belief, which you say, I think, unfounded, is that the BBC has a liberal bias, is anti-Tory. You don't think it is in the end, do you? You think this effort to understand uh, shouldn't be regarded as, if you like, automatically questioning of, as it were, the, uh, any political position? No, I think that I can absolutely concede that it's in the nature of broadcasters and interviewers to be small r radical in their approach to things. That's to say, you don't become a, a reporter, a journalist, a political interviewer, if, to adopt uh, Walpole's old dictum, you want to let sleeping dogs lie. You, Roger, are a perfect example. When you see a sleeping dog, you poke it with a stick and see what's making it sleep and why it doesn't wake up and look around and see the world as it is. And in that sense, of course, Mark Thompson, when he was director general, said that when you joined the BBC, it was an overtly liberal left-wing organisation. So is the editorial staff of The Times and the Daily Mail, for that matter. People who go into our job are pokers of sticks into wasp nests or into the flanks of dogs, if you prefer the analogy. Uh, and so in that sense, liberal, yes, 
But not having a, an agenda for what the answer is or how things could be made better, just asking people how things could be made better. Otherwise, we'd be politicians. I mean, otherwise, if you had strong views about how to make the world better, you'd be doing your duty to go into politics and fight for them. Well, David, I mean, it's one of the questions that interested me. Why aren't you in politics? If you look at his background, your background, you went to Christchurch, Oxford. You were even a member of the Bullingdon Club. Now you think that you qualifies said, me to be prime minister? No, no, it qualified <laughs> it qualify a certain person called Boris Johnson, apparently. <laughs> you said you enjoyed the sense of privilege that membership bestowed of the Bullingdon Club. Later on, you joined uh, Brooks Club in London for a while. It was where there where the chairman of the BBC uh, asked if you were interested in becoming director general. So superficially, you're on the inside. You're good friends with cabinet ministers, or certainly one, William Waldegrave, and so on. And yet, you've always said, I feel like an outsider. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a very... And apart from my friendship with, um, with William, which is a friendship which has nothing to do with politics, um, all the rest of it is just, you know, what came along. I'd, I'd never felt it wouldn't make me into a politician. I'd be hopeless as a politician, and anyway, I don't have strong views about what should be done. Well, you say it made you an outsider, and I wonder whether actually you looked from the inside at the people who thought they were going to run the country <laughs> and decided, mm, I don't really want to be one of you. Well, do you know when I was at university, it was in the late fifties, early sixties, and I can't remember anybody actually who became a senior politician from the people I knew at all. It was a different era, I think. This idea of the sort of Oxford Union route, I can't remember anybody who became very senior in politics. It wasn't what it became later, which was a sort of the track route into the Conservative... I mean, if you were in the Conservative Party, you then went and became a Conservative MP. If you were Liberals or Labour, you went on. I didn't think that was happening much. It was people were... Yeah, no, no, I think it was different. I don't know why. I haven't thought about that, but I think it was a slightly different era. But I was certainly, I was certainly never, ever attracted into politics because uh, I think I wasn't clever enough. Really. Well, you keep on saying that, but uh, and you mention a third-class degree. You actually go out of your way to say how privileged you are and how not very bright you are, whatever. And yet here you are, still broadcasting your 80s, having done every job virtually that mattered. That means there's hope for us all. Ah, but, well, indeed, but, I mean, you either can or you can't. I mean, uh, it's one thing to do an interview. It's another thing to handle, for example, the general election coverage over many, many hours with a whole range of voices coming in your ears and so on. It's, I mean, you can work at it, but it's a gift. When did you first realise you had that gift to chair something as complex as a general election? I started chairing very, very early a religious programme called Quest, which was done from Birmingham by the religious department immediately after I started working with the BBC. It must have been 1962 or 1963, I suppose. And burning topics of the time were things like, was sex before marriage immoral? You wouldn't get very far with that one today, would you? But anyway, the morality of sex before marriage and things like that, abortion rights and stuff. It was, you know, social issues. And that was when I sort of first began to use my muscles in terms of getting conflicting opinions out of people. It may have been a live programme, but shop. I mean, the general election... I can't imagine a greater excitement being when the polls close, people don't know what's going to happen, and you're there. But actually sitting in your seat with all of that happening, having to react immediately, to hold it all together, OBs from every constituency, interviews to pull in left, right and centre, I mean... 
if you can do it, I mean, it must be the equivalent of being Lewis Hamilton and driving a, a car around the track, as I. But when did you first get the thought I can actually do this? Whatever it is, my temperament, whatever, I can handle this. I've no idea, Roger. I did. Seven, 1979 was the first one I did. I remember being taken on one side by the producer about three or four days before. I think I mentioned in the book and being told you don't really know all these constituencies well enough, you must do a bit more work, which was, you know, from a producer or the editor of the programme three days before it went out was a brave thing to say, because he might have scared me off. But actually, I went away and spent, you know, day and night, day and night, learning this stuff up and found I could. I've always enjoyed the business of chairing and presenting information on television. I think because I find it quite easy to talk to a camera. A lot of people, I think, on television are frightened of the camera and they feel there are a million people out there. And I've always felt it's just, you know, one old lady sitting on a sofa I'm talking to. So I'm never alarmed by what I say. I never feel, you know, oh, my God, it's going to be listened to by millions of people. But in terms of the theatre, I really don't know when I got round to it. I mean, the first lecture I did was 79 and they said afterwards, well, he did that well enough. He can do the next one in 64, was it? Yeah. That, that by then I got the hang of it. And then once you got the hang of it, you make sure you sit in that seat. And you've never wanted to retire. You tell you in the book about uh, some boss, yeah. I think, of Question Time or perhaps of the current Affairs Department or, tried to fire you and you have a quick word with the Director-General and that was soon rescinded. Did they really try, <laughs> did they try and get rid of you? Yeah, there was a head of um, BBC One, Lorraine Hegarty, she was called. She wanted to make BBC One appeal. You know, BBC always in this kind of thing about it. We're not appealing to young people. I mean, I've always held the view that actually young people become early middle-aged people and then they start doing different things. But anyway, this uh, fetish about the young. And so she thought that having a younger person chairing Question Time would bring a younger audience. The fact that we had the youngest profile of people watching political programmes of any programme on British television did not seem to occur to her. And so my very good friend, Mark Damaso, who happened to be in charge of the programme, was deputed to take me out to an expensive lunch and tell me I was fired. And then uh, a bit later, um, Mark Thompson had just come in as Director General said, um, when I told him this, said, oh, well, you must come and have lunch with me. And I had lunch with him, and he said, you can do it as long as you like. So that's that story. It was a very brief <laughs> moment. I mean, that, but, but not retiring, I don't understand the word, really. Because if you have a job you don't particularly like, or a job which you do because you've got to have work and you've got to put food on the table, and you heave a sigh of relief at 65 when you retire and can lead your life, well, that's, that's a different matter. But for me... Broadcasting is my life, so I don't want to relinquish it. Why should I give it up? I like doing it. And my lodestar is David Attenborough, you see, who's 96, and I'm only 83. Well, I'm 84 next week, but I'm 83. So why shouldn't I go on? <laughs> no reason at all, from my point of view. Can I just pick up that point about deference? It's this strange thing that you, you feel both comfortable in any circumstances and also an outsider. You don't have any sense of deference. And I was, I've been watching you talk about royalty and in the book and also elsewhere, and you said in the book about royalty, for the BBC, the issue is the degree to which it should be a disinterested observer of monarchy or the vehicle for its promotion. And you also say the BBC is happy to portray the monarchy on its own terms. It is less comfortable scrutinising the institution or asking whether it is fit for purpose. And when it came to the funeral of the Queen, I think you said the palace was telling the BBC which shots to use, or rather which shots not to use. Is that true? Yes, of course it's true. I've said it. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm just staggered. 
Yeah, no, so was I. What happens is that the live broadcast of the funeral in Westminster Abbey and at St George's Chapel, Windsor, is, of course, a live broadcast, and the broadcasters with 210 cameras do any shots they want. Watching it all at Buckingham Palace is the Buckingham Palace press office or whoever, who minute by minute log what pictures are being shown and own the copyright of those pictures. That's what's so strange. And then tell the broadcasters immediately what can be reused when they do a repeat or want to show another bit of it. And say, at, at this moment, you get this shot of somebody wiping their nose, not to be used. You get this shot of uh, Beatrice and Eugenie leaving St George's, not to be used. You get this shot of um, Prince George touching his nose, at, you know, and they give the exact time, so they're watching it all with time code, not to be used. So that's, that's the position. I was absolutely staggered by this. But this, um, the, this is the BBC it, giving up editorial control. It basically... Oh, no, not just the BBC. Oh, don't, yeah. don't go attacking the BBC, Roger Bolton. Far, far be it from you to do that. No, all the broadcasters. The palace owns the copyright of this big public event. It's weird. It's really weird. But it's only a small example. I mean, when I said this, asked the BBC about this... They were quite sort of surprised I didn't know. I mean, I was astonished. Do you know, I didn't know, and I was astonished. I knew there'd been a royal liaison officer. I knew I witnessed what you describe in the book, this sort of attitude whereby when it, BBC, when it comes to the monarchy, basically just reflects the monarchy, doesn't examine or report. And that, certainly in the outside broadcast world, was what you did. The journalistic world, we tried once or twice. I did a programme called The Radical Option of BBC Two about Elizabeth the Last. We tried to look at the Republican case and so on. But there is a real reluctance in the BBC to ask sensible questions about the monarchy today. You said perhaps it's time to scale things back. That's in terms of the monarchy. Do you think the BBC would dare make a programme about that? Yes, I mean, I think they'll be led by the present king, actually in an odd way, because all the messages now coming out of Buckingham Palace are about his plans for scaling back, aren't they? I mean, the first rumours about the coronation and how he'd like to have it, I'm not sure that, according to the Duke of Norfolk, I don't think he, he actually has control over the coronation, because when the Duke of Norfolk appeared in court the other day on a driving offence, he said he couldn't say what he was up to because the palace didn't know or something, and it would breach of confidence. It was, it's a weird world in there. It's a very weird world in there. Very but weird. what do you think about but, this deference that is there within the BBC well, to, the, to the monarchy as well? Uh, no, I think it's much more practical. I think the, you remember the old thing that it's better to overdo it than underdo it because the people who feel you're underplaying monarchy are the ones who complain more than those who feel you're overdoing it. They came a bit unstuck with the Duke of Edinburgh's funeral, apparently, when all channels stopped broadcasting effectively and just played solemn music and people thought they'd gone over the top but in the past certainly with other royal events I think the the mantra has been you don't risk anything by doing a bit too much but you do risk things if you don't respect people's love of, of monarchy and respect for the queen and whatever so, so the rule has been more is more. So do you think the BBC when the BBC tries to represent itself as a unifying organisation in the United Kingdom do you think, in that sense, it instinctively supports the monarchy? You say it's not disinterested, I think. 
it's in the end supporting the status quo because as the national broadcaster it somehow feels it should do and then occasionally in its journalistic arm they think oh this actually should surely we should be asking some questions well it's certainly not a republican organization and in that sense it does support yes i mean the bbc does support the constitution we have a constitutional monarchy it's not against the constitution so you have to be careful about talking about differentiating say between Emily Maitlis's interview with Prince Andrew or Bashir's interview with Diana, which is, you know, undermining, setting the BBC at odds with the conventional view coming out of Buckingham Palace. But in constitutional terms, I think they accept that we have a head of state in the form of a monarchy, a Hanoverian succession, and um, that's our head of state. And the BBC, I think, sort of respects the paraphernalia that goes around that, the state opening of parliament, all those events, which... You know, some people find over the top, some people enjoy. I think they do that, not through gritted teeth, but simply because they support and think they're important, the the way the Constitution is set up. That shouldn't prevent them from saying, do we have the right form of Constitution? Should we look at how this operates? The Queen herself, remember, when she was making her Annus Horribilis speech after the Windsor fire and Diana and all that, and the separation, she said... I can't quote it exactly, but she said, in effect, no organisation. And she said something, something, including the monarchy, including the head of state, should be protected from criticism. And then she added something like better offered if offered in a kindly way. But I mean, she absolutely said, you know, of course you can criticise, you can argue about, you can closely examine the way monarchy works. I think she, in a funny way, put it more boldly than the BBC would, because they didn't take her up on it. They've not looked at the strange royal prerogatives that apply to capital gains tax on the Duchy of Cornwall or something, all those sort of things. They haven't, we don't actually know, there's so much we don't actually know about the way the monarchy works. And you think we should know? Yeah, absolutely, of course. I don't think it would diminish it at all to know. I think you need to know. You would know, and then you can agree, you can acquiesce in it, or if you think things need changing, you can change them. And that seemed to be the Queen's view, but not the BBC's. Uh, by the way, David, have you ever been offered an honour? I, would, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be boastful about that. Have you ever been offered a, an honour? You don't have to tell me which honour. No. Uh, oh, I, uh, OK. <laughs> uh, what I've always, uh, have always said is that I, don't, I would not accept an honour that came through Number 10 Downing Street. And that would mean a knighthood. And if ever it's been offered, I've always said that. And I was quite critical when other people, broadcasters, took me. used to be thinking about Sir Robin Day, our old colleague and your predecessor at Question Time. Yeah, I used to argue with him about it all the time, yes. So as you're not going to retire, you're not going to exactly. be offered anything, so are you? No, exactly, <laughs> until, I'm, until I'm retired, <laughs> which may be some time no. off, good luck. Well, so in... After this podcast may become quicker than expected. One last question, though, which is you're going to do the Cenotaph uh, Remembrance Day. That, for you, is special, isn't it? I've heard your comments elsewhere about yes. perhaps some things are overdone. You don't think the Cenotaph is overdone, do you? Not in any way, no. The first thing is it's a very simple service. That bit of it is not overdone. And the march past the Cenotaph by the veterans, 10,000. You cannot say that 10,000 people wanting to march past the Cenotaph in memory of their 
families, their parents, their own colleagues being killed in war um, can be overdone. No, it's not a triumphalist thing. It's not a, some people, occasionally you hear people say that it's sort of, you know, patriotism ripped too large and obsession with how we won the Second World War. But it's not that at all, actually, in my view. It's not about, it's not even about the Second World War now. There have been so many other deaths in war and, you know, everywhere, Afghanistan and Iraq and Korea. And, you know. So I think it's, um, it's a proper day for people to commemorate people they knew and loved or fought alongside. So I have no qualms at all about that event. And do you still feel privileged about being the commentator on it? Very privileged. I find it, I spend a lot of time working on it because you have to kind of work out a way of identifying people who are going past correctly and not wrongly and all that. And, um, and, and yes, I d- deem it a great privilege. But then I think all broadcasting is a privilege. I mean, I've, I think it's a great privilege to have done 10 general elections. I think it's a huge privilege to have done 25 years of question time. Of course, it's a privilege because you're given great responsibility in terms of communication, which, you know, you hope you've earned, but it's nevertheless a huge privilege. I feel very fulfilled, really, by having been allowed to do it for so long. But your appetite is not sated. Ah, like a drug, you mean? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's yours. No, uh, it's been a ple- <laughs> it's been a pleasure and a privilege talking to you, David. Thank you very much. Thanks, Roger. And that's it for this week. Remember, do get in touch on Twitter by using at beebroger, or you can send an email to roger at rogerboltonsbeebwatch.com. And just so you know, this podcast was presented by me, Roger Bolton, and produced by Kate Dixon. It was a good egg production. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>